Hi all, and welcome back to Mindful Minds. Um, today we're going to talk about mega churches, and we're going to do the part two of our mega church series. For those of you who haven't listened to yesterday's episode, for one, I would really recommend going back and listening to that because I purposely broke these episodes into two parts because it was just too much to cover in one. So we go over quite a bit of, I think, context needed for this episode. Specifically, if you just listen to this episode as a standalone, you're going to be like, hey, you didn't cover a lot of stuff. That's because a lot of it's covered in the first part. Um, But in the first part, we covered... We talked about the healing culture. We talked about prosperity gospel, health, wealth gospel. We talked about some of the capitalistic nature of things, um, the ableism, some of the racism and colonialism. We talked about some of the miracles that are performed and kind of the fabrication of what it feels like to experience God. Um, and then some of the trauma that just kind of goes hand in hand with that. So that episode is important as kind of a precursor to this episode. And then if you're, if you're back from yesterday, welcome back. Um, I know this is kind of a funky format. I normally just do episode releases on Friday, but I, I, I felt like this was a cohesive conversation that would be better taken just in like two days compared to trying to wait two weeks. So I figured we'll just do two episodes in two days, which, uh, probably bit off a little more than I can chew. Um, it is Friday night at like nine 20 is when I'm recording this and this is supposed to drop tomorrow morning at 6am. So, uh, didn't time manage well, but either way we're recording. So here we are. Um, so in this episode, I wanted to talk about, um, some, some more of the capitalistic nature of things and, just kind of how mega churches I think were a really large contributor as to how Christianity became like a business model essentially. And then I also want to talk about some of the cult like stuff, which is going to go into some purity culture. And then I wanted to end on some of the controversies. I am not going to go into specific controversies um, too deeply, because honestly, I think that that would just be too big of an episode. I'll mention a few of them, but we're not going to deep dive. Um, I just, I don't really see the point to be totally honest right now. I don't think it aligns with what I'm trying to communicate in this episode, but obviously so many of those controversies are like public records. So if you want to go and look into them, go for it. Um, but with all that being said, Obviously, I want to give some trigger warnings. So we're going to talk about, um, obviously, religious trauma and church trauma. We're also going to get into some of the purity culture trauma and the coercion and the manipulation and the sexism and the shame that comes with that. And then also with some of the cult light aspects where it can get really coercive and like there's very odd power dynamics. So be aware of that. And then we're also going to talk about some of the controversies and some of those include sexual misconduct and sexual abuse, um, and just kind of power abuse in general. So I just want to give everybody a warning for that. Um, if this is not the episode that you feel like you can take in right now, that's totally fine. You can meet us in two weeks. Um, but With all that being said, we can kind of just jump in. Um, We'll kind of pick up where we left off a little bit yesterday. We talked yesterday quite a bit about the capitalism nature of that, and I want to kind of continue that conversation into this episode. So we talked in the last episode about what qualifies a megachurch, what is a megachurch, like what makes that church I almost just said what makes that church mega, and how redundant can I get? Jesus Christ. Um... But essentially, 
a huge part of that obviously is the numbers, right? That's, that's what makes it big. That's what makes it mega is the number of people attending those churches. And so I think with that, I think there's multiple things that come with that. And we're going to get into this in the controversy side of it too, of the power dynamics and the politics of it. But I think from a capitalistic perspective, when you have that many people and you're off, you're asking for offering, you're asking for tithing, you're asking for 10% of people's income, which for those of you who maybe weren't raised in the church, I'll give some context on that. Um, it is a Christian thing. I can't speak for other religions. I don't know if this is th- things that other religions do because I was only raised in Christianity, but it is a Christian thing for churches to ask for tithe or offering, which is um, biblically supposed to be 10% of your income. And I remember when I was doing some research into cults, I heard someone say, if they're ever asking for a certain percentage of your income, you're in a cult. And I was like, oh, (laughs) I guess that makes sense. Um, I still don't know where I land on that. I, I always feel hesitant to talk about Christianity as a cult because I know that there are literal like people who study cults that have very specific parameters for what constitutes something as a cult. And I always feel like there I'm, I'm so anti like true crime and the whole idea of idealizing people's trauma and making it entertaining. I don't like the podcasts and the episodes and the TV shows that talk about, you know, true crime and cults and like, I like the education aspect of like when there's a, a podcast that's talking about like I was in a cult, here's how to avoid being in a cult. <laughs> but I don't like the let's get off on other people's trauma. And so I always feel really like hesitant because I don't want to I don't know, I don't want to call something a cult when someone else could have had it worse, I guess. And I I don't want to like make light of that because I know that word has become very commercialized and kind of lost some of its meaning because it's just become such a thing to be really entertained by like cults and learning about them. And so I'm always hesitant to call it a cult. I also know that there's like, that's obviously just going to send like fucking uproar through the Christian community if they hear that people are calling them a cult. But the more that I look into it from a perspective of what I experienced, it does seem to align with some serious cult-like practices, tithing being one of them in my opinion. Um, we'll get more into the cult-like practices later in this episode, but the tithing aspect, you're you're creating a business, right? And part of that is you're paying um, the rent for the, for the building. You're paying the salaries of the staff. And um, when you have a mega church that's that big, I mean, we were talking last episode, there are some churches with like 100,000 uh, weekly average attendance, which is insane. Um, obviously, you're going to be raking in a lot of money. So I don't have the stats or the research of when this started, but essentially I think it, I mean, obviously like Billy Graham conferences were what started. I think like, I don't think it started, but they go back as early as that. Right. But from my perspective, I grew up in the Christian church in the early 2000s and 2010s. And, um, there were kind of this like core group of modern cool, trendy churches that were mega churches that started this conference thing where there were all these conferences where you could pay a certain sum and you could go. And it was like the crossover event of the century. And it would be like multiple worship bands 
that, you know, you grew up listening to and singing their worship songs at youth group. And then they'd be there and you'd get to like, everyone was wearing ripped skinny jeans and everyone had their lattes and their Chelsea boots and their really big wide brim hats. Um, and a lot of people were tattooed because we were those like cool Christians and it, it became very businesslike and very soon after and simultaneously, a lot of those Christian bands started touring and we're not talking about like Christian artists. I think that's really important to differentiate between. We're not talking about like jars of clay or like, uh, what's another one? Jesus, uh, super chick like or Barlow girl that are, are Christian bands, right. That are in the Christian music industry, the contemporary Christian music industry, or like the Christian rock industry. We're talking about like worship bands that were the worship leaders at these mega churches that formed bands, started releasing music and then created an empire. And of course, the thing that everyone goes to first is Hillsong because Hillsong started and then they developed all these different sects of their um, sexes, S-E-C-T-S, not S-E-X, of uh, their worship bands. So they had Hillsong United, they had Hillsong Worship, they had Hillsong Young and Free, and they started developing all these different worship bands. And they started touring, and then Bethel had their worship band, and they had Jesus Culture. They start touring. Um, who else? Elevation Elevation Worship starts touring. Uh, recently, Maverick City Music, like all these different worship bands that start touring and, and making a lot of money off of this, right? And then we already talked about the music and the Spotify and the streams, and um, it starts growing. And like I mentioned in the last episode, what happens is all of these other churches that are smaller start like... Uh, I guess does like basing their actions off of what these mega churches are doing. So I was going to a church that had, uh, I'm probably going to like butcher the numbers, but I think we had probably somewhere around like 3000 weekly attendance. Maybe it was closer to 2000. Um, or maybe it wasn't that high, but I know for a fact that we hit over 2000, I think relatively frequently. And so technically from like a definition perspective, we were a mega church. And in the early 2010s, I want to say it was like 2012, um, the conferences were becoming really popular with these mega churches. And we started doing conferences as well. And a lot of other smaller churches started doing them as well. Um, with youth, youth groups specifically, and so you have um, these smaller churches, and when I say smaller, I mean like smaller mega churches that would put on these other smaller conferences and would invite different uh, worship bands to come and perform. So we had um, we had our worship team, and then we had like a few smaller mega pastors come and speak. And then I remember I went to another conference that had started before ours that was with another mega church in the area and they scored Hillsong Young and Free one year and they had John Gray come one year and then they had Rich Wilkerson Jr. And then they had, um, I think they might've had Judah Smith one year and fast forward, the pastor at that church that was holding those conferences at the time is now a significant mega pastor who is buddy buddy with a whole bunch of celebrities. So you have this kind of group of people and you're perpetuating this business like model of Christianity where it's becoming a product, it's becoming a big production. 
and you've got the fog and you've got the lights and you've got the, um, the food trucks. And like, we had like a secular radio station come one year, which was like super bizarre. And then you often, it's like normally like a three or two day conference and you have children, you know, children ages like 12 to 18 paying their own money, (laughs) which like, let's acknowledge how like silly that is. First of all, that you're trying to frame it as like a, we love the youth of the area here, spend your allowance on our conference. Like that's so fucking stupid to me. Um, and I say this while also being very aware and being honest about the fact that I was a part of these conferences. I was on the production team. I would help plan some of them. I was like staying at the church until midnight, putting them together. I was in it. Right. Um, as an adult, I think it's very predatory as a child. I thought it was the coolest fucking thing in the whole world. And so you have situations like that. And then you, there were these huge altar calls and the fog and the music and the skinny jeans. And then you have children having just like church camp, you have children having really drastic reactions and emotional responses that are like totally fair for the environment that they're in, where there's a lot of emotional pressure and manipulation. And I'm not trying to discount that everyone in those events never felt anything that they felt was spiritual because it's not fair for me to say, Hey, I know your experience better than you do. And I'm going to say that it wasn't the Holy spirit. I don't have the right to say that. Maybe you did experience the Holy spirit. I know from my personal experience in those types of environments, I felt very pressured. I felt like if I didn't experience something spiritual, I didn't have enough faith, wasn't cool enough, wasn't a good enough Christian. And so I felt really severe pressure Um, there were some conferences with churches that were more charismatic where you would have people start to speak in tongues and you would have someone get on the mic and start to speak in tongues. And then you'd have a whole bunch of kids speaking in tongues at the same time. And in my opinion, you then create mass hysteria because tongues for personally, I don't think it's real. And I say that as someone who pretended to speak tongues as a child, because I thought that I, I thought I was cool. Um, and that I was supposed to do it. And I just literally spoke gibberish and made it up. And from my experience of talking to a lot of people who have left the church, who used to speak in tongues when they were involved in the religion, a lot of people did the same thing. So you're creating mass hysteria. You're freaking a lot of very small children out And then there's more intense and more charismatic experiences where you have people claiming to get, quote, drunk in the Holy Spirit, which for those of you who didn't grow up in evangelical charismatic environments, all that that means is basically you're so overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit that you start almost acting as if you are intoxicated and maybe you're slurring your words, maybe you're stumbling, maybe you fall down, maybe you're like kind of hysterically giggling. Um, and you're calling it Jesus. Uh, (laughs) I have a lot of thoughts about that, but we will save them for, we'll save them for in a moment. And then you also have more intense situations where you have, um, people, you've got healing starting right at conferences and you've got miracles claiming to happen. And I've already talked about this in the last episode with the healings aspect. But one of the things I didn't talk about was the fact that there were some 
primary supernatural ministry schools at that time period that were training students who would then go out into other churches and spread that really dangerous theology and teach other people how to do miracles. And the thing that is most prevalent in my memories is um, we had a few men who had gone to that, gone to a a supernatural ministry school and um, they tried to, (laughs) they claimed to heal a young girl who was depressed. Um, and they said that she had a demon in her and they tried to cast out said demon. She had a full panic attack and was on the floor convulsing. And they were saying it was the demon. And we're talking about a 16 year old child here and two, uh, over 18 men, uh, in my opinion, doing something very abusive to her. And, so you have those types of things occurring. And a lot of that occurred at like conferences and these like big nights that people would put on these big youth nights that were kind of modeled after the conference model. Um, you also have things in more charismatic environments where people would do things such as slither on the floor, like snakes. Um, so yeah, uh, I didn't experience that personally. Um, I have friends and close family members that experienced it, um, not themselves, but like we're at an event where it happened and like really freaked out. <laughs> um, and other kind of very odd, quote unquote, like exhibits of the Holy Spirit. Obviously, as an adult who has studied psychology, I don't think any of that is legit. I think it is a result of people being put in very peer pressure environments and then also like a severe abuse of power and a lot of indoctrination. But the thing that I think is really important to note as well that I've learned a lot as an adult is that when you have that many like fake fabrications of emotional experiences, I do think that it really skews the way that young people in evangelical charismatic environments look at emotion because I I think that it creates an environment where you don't really know left from right when it comes to your emotions because you're constantly being coerced and manipulated and pushed into a corner to feel certain feelings or you're not good enough or you don't have enough faith. And so I think it trains children and teaches their brains to really not be able to recognize what emotions really are or how to detect them, or how they feel in your body. And then when you grow up, you are facing a lot of trauma healing, and you don't know how to heal from that trauma because you're so disconnected from your emotions. And speaking from personal experience, it takes a long time to bounce back from that kind of stuff because you're retraining your brain and teaching it, hey, when I feel this in my stomach, it's actually anxiety. It's not the Holy Spirit. When I feel this in my body and I'm feeling these, this shaking feeling, that's actually fear. That's not the Holy Spirit. And so it's kind of this, this confusing narrative where the Holy Spirit gets placed as a blanket statement or a blanket answer to all emotional questions, when in reality, it, it, you're just having emotions and not knowing how to label them. So I think that's very problematic. Um, obviously the cap we can, I mean, I don't want to get, I've already talked about the capitalism. I don't, it's problematic. They, they make too much money. I don't think they should make that much money. I think it should be taxed. 
And I think it's, I don't think it's about Jesus. I think it's about money. And you can see it by how many crazy expensive things people have. And I'm not, once again, if you make money and you want to spend it, that's fine. But I, I will go back to what I said in the last episode, just like there's no ethical billionaires. I don't think there's ethical mega churches or ethical mega pastors. Um, and then moving forward, let's hop into the cult aspect because obviously the like slithering like snakes is super fucking cult-like and weird. But then there's also, um, there's some other aspects of just evangelical Christianity as a whole, but I think it really shows up in mega churches quite often with the, the cult-like aspects. Um, I have, you know, gone into this quite a bit with one specific mega church that exhibited a lot of cult-like aspects, um, and behaviors. But, um, I think there are, I think the healings and the miracles can get very culty. Um, and the thing that I think is probably the most prevalent when it comes to the cult-like behaviors and the cult-like aspects is, is purity culture. Um, there are, you know, purity ceremonies and purity balls, um, purity rings and contracts, uh, for once again, for those of you who didn't grow up in evangelical Christianity, that might sound absurd to you. And it is absurd, but basically what happens in a lot of evangelical environments is, um, there is the idea that your body and your virginity belongs to God and kind of in turn belongs to like the church and your pastor. If you're kind of, if you're being technical with it, you're, it's kind of just belongs to like men, but not you. Um, and, and why I'll explain why I say that, but basically you don't own your body. Um, and your decision to have sex is not based on you. It's based on what is right and what is spiritual and what is religious Um, and there are these churches all do it differently, but basically like there is a kind of common thread of having some sort of purity ceremony or purity commitment, which can happen in a purity ball where you you, like wear a white dress and there's this whole like coming of age kind of thing, which is like so creepy and pervy and pedophile and weird. Um, there's also purity rings where you wear a ring to show that you haven't had sex yet. Um, or there's purity contracts where you will have like a contract that you and your parents or just your father signs and you're promising and contractually obligated to your father to save your flower or your virginity or your gift for your husband. It is much more prevalent for people who grow up in, um, female presenting bodies than it is for people who grow up in male presenting bodies. Although I will say that purity culture is, um, it is very present in all experiences of growing up in evangelical Christianity, despite your, um, this, the sex that you were born, but it definitely, I think impacts, uh, people who grew up in, uh, female presenting bodies more. Um, and I think part of that is just because it's obviously so patriarchal and so built on what men want and what they think about your body, what they think you're worth, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so that's obviously, I think the fact, you know, wearing a white dress and having a ceremony and signing a contract saying that your body belongs to a man is, is incredibly cult-like. 
But I think the thing that for me personally, I've seen the most crossover between a traditional cult and evangelical Christianity is the blind obedience. Um, if you were raised in an evangelical environment, you I'm sure will relate to the idea that you are taught to not question anything. Um, they do a very good job of clarifying very quickly that doubting is not necessarily a sin, but isn't what they want you to be doing. Um, they use the doubting Thomas analogy very quickly to dissuade people from even expressing doubt. And then you are expected to just have your head down, walk forward and follow your religious leaders with very little discernment or critical thinking or evaluation. And I think it is backed up by the fact that authority and respecting authority is so focused on and it creates these environments where young people just believe what they're told and you get to a point where maybe you reach adulthood and you have resources and you have freedom and you're kind of out of the situation and you turn around and look at your life and say, what the fuck have I been doing? What is this? There's no logic behind this. And then you have to come to terms with all the damage that has been done. I recently posted a video on TikTok about the fact that only within the last few years that I realized that the story that I'd been told for my entire life from churches and teachers and pastors about men having one less rib than woman, women because God took a rib from Adam and made Eve was not biologically correct. Um, and I learned it via Google. And I had a lot of people uh, post in a comment and be like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, how did you not know this? Why did you not Google? Why did you not realize? And here's the thing. When you are taught from a very young age that this book is the only truth, and then you're taught to not res- not disrespect authority, and that like one of the core pieces of uh, theology, one of your core rules should be respecting parents and respecting authority. And your parents are telling you certain things, your pastors are telling you certain things, and you're just taught to keep your head down and to listen and be obedient. And then you're taught that doubting is not what you should be doing. You shouldn't be asking questions. And anytime you do ask questions, it is kind of redirected as like a we get it, but like here's how to get back on the right path. It makes sense that you would hit adulthood and maybe move out and maybe maybe you're not going to church often. Maybe you're out of that circle and then you have access to resources. You have access to people who didn't experience that upbringing who then can kind of like bring you back down to earth and say, hey, that's fucking weird. Like what you what you experienced is weird. That's not right. That's odd. That's unhealthy. That's traumatic. And then you can start looking at the rest of the world and realize, oh, fuck, like I am the odd man out here. This is very weird. Like something was not right here. But when you're in it, And all four walls around you are just reflecting back Christianity, Christianity, Christianity. Why on earth would you doubt that and go and and go and research into it more? And if you had the discernment to do so, holy shit, props to you. Because like most of us, most of us just didn't even have the wherewithal to, to think, oh, should I be questioning this until we were much older? And so it, it, it's, it shouldn't be a shameful thing that you, you didn't question it and that you didn't, um, 
I don't know, that you didn't leave. Um, some people didn't even have internet access. I had a lot of people in my comments being like, yeah, my parents didn't believe in the internet. So like I, I didn't have any access to do research even if I wanted to. And then there's also the, the, um, possibility that maybe you had your church and your parents were religious and you also went to a religious school and all of your friends were religious and you had religious extracurriculars. You had no outlet and no, um, pathway to like the real world where someone could maybe come to you and say, Hey, that's really weird what you're being taught. Um, and so, yeah, it, it makes sense that, that you wouldn't question it. Um, and I think that that in itself, uh, speaks to the cult, (laughs) the cult question, right? Because if you have, if you're being taught so many things and you basically have no connection to the outside world, there's, there's a chance you're in a cult. Um, there's a chance. And so I think that, um, I think that I I don't, that's an opinion. It's an opinion. I'm, I'm not gonna get into, um, cause I mean, honestly, like if, if I don't believe that God is real. And so obviously in my opinion, like Christianity is very cult-like, But I think even if you really believe that God is real, I I still think that there are some serious red flags when it comes to is evangelical Christianity a cult. And then additionally, the kind of idea that it's that you're you're head down, not making not asking questions also creates this vacuum that um, often leads to abuse. And so I'm going to kind of talk about some of the abuse and some of the controversy. So if that's triggering for you, just a heads up. but essentially, if you're taught from a really young age that um, you're not supposed to question anything um, and you're supposed to trust authority, I think it creates this vacuum environment where authority has permission to be abusive. Because for one, in mega churches, when when there are that many people, I think things can fall through the cracks really easy. And I also think, this is a personal opinion, but I think anytime you put one fallible human being in charge of a large group of people and you say, this is the person you're supposed to look up to, um, you're gun- something fucked up will happen. Um, whether it's behind the scenes with the people who are supposed to be holding that person accountable, whether it is some sort of weird power hungry dynamic, whether it is an abuse of power, whether it's that person just is bound to make a mistake and then it'll crumble everyone else's view of that um, ideology because the person that was supposed to represent that ideology made a mistake, um, or made a series of very, uh, very awful choices that they were very aware they were making. Cause I think mistake makes it sound like it was like an oopsie. And a lot of the times these pastors are making very intentional, um, conscious mistakes, um, and conscious choices. Um, which I don't, I don't think it's fair to classify as a mistake. And so what I'm, what I'm kind of working up to is I think that when you put someone in power of that many people, there's bound to be abuse happening. And then when you have all these very small young people who are growing up in this environment and you're telling them you're just supposed to trust your pastors and trust your teachers. And like, you're also not teaching them sex education. You're not teaching them consent education. You're not teaching them what is right and wrong when it comes to a sexual relationship. You're just teaching them that sex is divine and sex is holy. And um, let's say that we then have pastoral abuse where a pastor is abusing a child. 
um, they might use the line of like, well, sex is holy. And like, I am holy. There's, there's a really easy, easy, easy way to manipulate. Right. Um, and then let's say that it's a pastor and and an adult. Um, I just think that anytime you have someone in a position of that much power, there's bound to be something to go. There's just bound to be something that goes wrong. And from my personal experience, I've spoken about this on the podcast many times, but I grew up in this kind of mega church esque environment, which I guess technically it was classified as mega church from the numbers perspective. But we had our pastor and he got kicked out for like 30 accounts of misconduct and um, found out behind the scenes, which this is all public record. It's in lots of different articles and stuff, but um, found from a lot of different behind the scenes stuff and some survivors came forward um, that this had been going on for, I want to say like four years before he officially got kicked out and that it had been brought to the board and um, it had been brought to, you know, the people who were supposed to hold him accountable and they kind of gave him a slap on the wrist and said, don't do it again. Here's what we need you to do to make sure that we're like holding you accountable and then let him keep his position of leadership. And then it kept happening. And even when it came out publicly, the church did not instantly condemn him. They kind of stood behind him for a little while and then it got too big in the press and they decided to then condemn him. Um, the community of the church, about 80% of the community, in my opinion, were very hostile towards the anonymous survivors that had come forward. They just come forward to the church that they, their names were not released publicly. Um, and I think that the other thing that can happen in these types of environments, and this is not exclusive to mega churches. I've just seen it happen a lot, um, is, the aspect of forgiveness that's taught in evangelical Christianity is the idea that like God can forgive any sin. And if you grew up in an evangelical environment, I'm sure you've probably heard at some point or another, like God forgives the murderers. Like God wants to have dinner with the killers. And like, they often tend to leave rapists out of that, like lovely line of bad people that Jesus would like to sit down with, but it's implied. And, um, sometimes some ballsy pastors will be like, yeah, Jesus loves the rapists. And everyone's kind of like, Ooh, <laughs> um, but I think that that kind of doctrine of like Jesus forgives all, um, permits people to do shitty things because there's this idea that there really is no real consequence because as long as you, um, apologize and ask for forgiveness and confess to Jesus, um, you're all good. <laughs> Like you're, you're chilling. Um, and I remember before our pastor got kicked out, he had someone come on stage as a guest pastor who had, uh, sexual assault allegations against him. And I was in the process of having my sexual assault investigation and I was so upset. I was like, what the fuck? Like, why is this guy coming on who we all know, like, abused these women. Why is he on stage? Why was he invited as a guest pastor and a guest speaker? Like, this is not okay. And I was really frustrated. And, um, very soon after that, our pastor, um, his whole scandal leaked. And, um, we all found out that like he had been doing similar things behind the scenes and it very quickly started to make a lot of sense to me where it was like, well, of course he's having other guest pastors on and giving them a platform to redeem themselves because if they're redeemable, then he's redeemable. 
And so I think there was just this common trend where pastors would do really awful things and then they would ask for forgiveness and they would be slapped on the hand by leadership and then they would be told, here, go do this one little thing as your consequence or to help heal you or help keep you accountable and then we're just going to give you the same position of leadership back. And um, to me, from an ethical perspective, that's so brutally absurd, which I don't think I need to explain why. Um, But I just think that it breeds environments where then you have male congregants looking at pastors who are given chance after chance after chance after chance after chance after doing horrid, horrid, horrid things, but asking for forgiveness. And so their slates are wiped clean. It, it, it gives these male congregants that are watching these people and looking up to them permission to be shitty people. Because if you just ask for forgiveness, then you're fine. And the reality is one of the themes that I have learned in my life and it's been coming up a lot over the past six months is no one is a sounding board. You, anything that you say to anyone is going to impact the way that they view you. The only time that might not happen is if you have a therapist who is just kind of being paid to sit there and listen to you. But if you are, um, if you're treating someone in a certain way and someone, another friend sees it, that's going to inform them about who you are as a person where it's like, well, if, if they're going to treat that other friend that way, maybe they're going to treat me that way at some point. And I think that that applies to, um, abusive natures as well, where if you're watching someone be abusive in some certain situation, there's, there's, there should, I hope that there's some part of your brain that's saying, well, if they're abusive to that person, are they going to be abusive to me? And I think that the thing that happens when you have this forgiveness narrative is for one, there's the expectation there's not going to be any consequences and that you can just kind of go through life doing whatever you want as long as you ask for forgiveness. And there's also kind of the idea that like your actions shouldn't inform the way that other people think about you because it's like, well, no, if I ask for forgiveness, then like I'm all good. My slate's wiped clean. And it's like, well, no, I just heard that you raped this girl so I don't want to fucking be around you. And it's like, no, but I like, I got help and like, I, I, I asked for forgiveness and it, there's just this expectation. And honestly, there's like, there's a gaslighting that happens where you're kind of, they often will gaslight you into thinking that you have no right to have any negative feelings towards this person. And I've had that happen with pastors and with other, um, even other like youth leaders who have been called out for doing horrible, horrible things. And they get like, they get six months of probation to like, go get help. And they come back and everyone's kind of like, just welcomes them back with open arms. And me with my history with abuse, I had all of my guards up of being like, I don't want to be around this person. This is not a safe person for me to be around. And there was this expectation from leadership for me to just swallow it and say, well, no, they were forgiven. So I need to just forgive them. And I saw this apparent in my life again, when I switched churches after this whole controversy with my home church, um, which was my home church of 15 years. Um, so I went to a different church and I had another thing happen where there was verbal abuse happening. And 
the pastors of that church told me, well, we can't pastor you if you don't want to be pastored and explained that if you don't want to meet with this person who is being abusive towards you and work towards forgiveness, we can't help you. Compared to this person who was in leadership is 20 years older than you and was speaking to you in an abusive and very inappropriate way. Um, we're going to remove him from leadership because that's not the type of person we want in our leadership on our leadership team. Instead of that being the narrative, the narrative was no, 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 no. You need to forgive because that's what we do here. We forgive and we work towards healing. And that that's often a word that gets thrown around. And I think it then creates an environment where so many survivors of abuse and just honestly, just people in general are taught that, The only way to grow, to move forward, to heal is through forgiveness. And that is bullshit. Um, You do not have to forgive people. You don't. And if you grew up in a religious environment and you were taught that you had to forgive everyone who did you wrong, that's bullshit. You don't have to do that. Um, And the reality is sometimes, a lot of the time, If someone is showing you that they are not a person that you feel safe around, that you don't want to have in your life, you have every right to turn around and say, I do not want you in my life. I need to step back from this. I don't ever want to speak to you again. I'm setting this boundary. And I think what happens in these church environments is you are taught to not have boundaries because you're expected to prioritize forgiveness above all else, which I think similar to how we were talking about the emotional aspect and how this type of religious trauma, these environments teach young people to not learn what their emotions feel like. And this type of forgiveness narrative teaches young people to not learn how to set boundaries, how to hold those boundaries, how to acknowledge and gain a radar for when someone is safe and someone isn't. It, It kind of just, I think, numbs your sense of discernment to a point where You're just, you have no discernment and you have no like gut feeling. And some of the thing, I talked about this on the podcast already, but some of the things that I've learned through my trauma healing journey is that I lost a lot of my like gut feeling and I stopped trusting my gut. And I can't help but think that a lot of that was probably due to religious trauma because you're just taught for so many years that your gut, your gut instinct doesn't really matter because it's it's mixed with this weird, is it the Holy Spirit? And then simultaneously, even if you have kind of a red flag pop up, you're expected to forgive and forget and move forward. And it, it, it just creates this really, really messy environment where I think you aren't set up to succeed in relationships and you're also set up to be abused. Um, not just by the church, but by anybody because you just don't have the tools to protect yourself in, in the real world. Um, and so obviously... Like I said, that's not just a that's not just an evangelical thing. That's not just a mega church thing. That's just something that I personally have seen as a common thread through mega churches and specifically through evangelical mega churches. And then of course, we'll just end on the controversy aspect. Then we have these controversies from these mega churches where we have mega pastors getting kicked out for abuse, um, calling it adultery when in reality we find out that it's very much so um intentional sexual abuse and intentional abuse of power. Um, and you have them bouncing back so quickly because once again, you're taught to forgive and that God can redeem anything. And so even when you see these people making 
choices and having patterns of abusive behavior, you're able to write it off as, well, God redeemed them. God made them clean. God forgave them. So I'm going to forgive them. And you, there's this cycle of just continuously up, like keeping these abusive people in positions of power because they really can never lose. Like there's the system has been created where they're just always, they're always going to be forgiven. And so they're, they're probably, it's very rare they lose their positions of power unless the world gets a hold of it. And in these mega pastor situations, the press gets a hold of it and it becomes such a huge outcry that they have to get them out of the leadership position. Um, that's kind of the only time when it actually happens. But, um, like I mentioned before, the pastor that was in my church, he got kicked out and got removed from leadership. Um, and very soon after started a new church that is now wildly successful um, and kind of bases it off of this, like, he has a bad reputation and, like, that's because he's he, like, fights for God kind of a thing. When in reality, it's because there was an he, – he's abusive. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think um, it just – I, I don't have to keep repeating myself, but it, it just creates an environment where there are cycles of abuse that keep continuing and you're not teaching the young people in the environment to be able to t- detect abuse, to be able to protect themselves from abuse. And then you're teaching the people in power how to maintain their power while being abusive. So it just creates a really icky cycle and it creates a really unsafe environment. And it's one of the main reasons why I got out. Um, and the last thing I want to bring up with the cult aspect is I was listening to a podcast Um on, uh, I think I may have mentioned this in the last episode, but, uh, I was listening to Glennon Doyle's podcast, We Can Do Hard Things. And, um, she was interviewing Sarah Edmondson, um, who was a, uh, survivor of the Nexium cult. And she was explaining some red flags for cults. And it was a very educational episode of just really giving people warnings of like, Hey, it might not seem like this is a cult. Here is how to tell if it is so you can get out. Um, And one of the things that she said was, do they make a huge stink when you leave? Is there there smoke when you leave? Because if there's smoke, there's going to be fire. And um, are there lawsuits? Are there threats of lawsuits? If you start speaking poorly about them, like do you start getting threatening messages? And I found that so interesting because when I left my church, I started speaking out against them and very quickly got messages that were threatening. I got threatened with lawsuits pretty soon after that, um, not because of me speaking out against the church, but because of me speaking out another uh, against another religious leader that had been involved with the church. Um, when I spoke out against another church that had been abusive towards me, I got very abusive phone calls where I was getting screamed at. And it was one of those things where it was like, oh shit, like that, that is a really good, um, red flag detector, I guess, is how upset are they if you start being honest about your experience? Because it's not, it's not how upset are they if you start lying about it? Because I, 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 anyone's going to be upset if you lie about them. But if you know your experience and you know, you're being truthful and you start talking about that and the people who you're telling the truth about start flipping the fuck out and threatening lawsuits, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit more cult-like than you thought it was. So that's the one thing I wanted to leave on just because when I was listening to that episode, it like really like struck a chord with me. But, um, yeah, so 
there's our mega church episode. Obviously, there's so much more I could have gotten into, but um, this is just kind of what was on the front of my mind for these two episodes. And like I said, if you guys have other things you'd like me to discuss, please, 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 please DM me, comment on the posts, uh, email me. I have a contact form on my website. Like, Whatever you guys want me to talk about, let me know. I'm totally open to doing more episodes on mega churches if you're interested, or even just on evangelical Christianity as a whole. Um, and then in two weeks, we're going to have a purity culture episode where we dive way deeper into purity culture than we just dove in now. Um, we're going to get into like a lot of the nitty gritty of it. So um, that episode I'm really excited for. Um, but if you want me to talk more about mega churches, please reach out. And just as a reminder, uh, next week we will not have an episode. We'll go back to the bi-weekly schedule. So in two weeks on Friday at 6 a.m. PST, we'll go back to those Friday bi-weekly episodes and we'll do the deconstruction episode. And then we have quite a few more fun episodes coming um, for the beginning of 2023. And then... Um, if you guys are looking for more deconstruction content in the interim between these episodes, feel free to look at my uh, TikTok. I go into so much deconstruction shit on my TikTok. Um, so you can follow me at Fina underscore underscore Bina, F-I-N-A underscore underscore B-I-N-A. Um, I post a ton on there, way more than I used to. So that's always a resource if you're interested. And then that's all the time that we have for today. I hope you guys like these episode formats. I know it was a little bit funky, but um, we tried something new. So so let me know if you liked it. But um, thank you guys so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please write us five stars on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also follow the blog on Instagram at Serafina blog and visit us online at serafinablog.com and mindfulmindspod.com. You can also follow the podcast on TikTok at mindfulmindspodcast. And as always, to end our time, unclench your jaw. We all need a deep breath after that episode, yeah? Take a deep breath and remember, you can always learn, you can always grow, and you can always choose to live your life in a more mindful way. I will chat with you guys in two weeks.